Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I wanted to make an Underworld-themed film, right? I mean, grew up on mm-hmm. Scarface, Goodfellas, and Godfather. I was like, what's the Chinese version of that, right? And the iteration for me was like, oh, let's, let's make it a woman. For me, having the strong Asian matriarchs was super important because that's all I had in my life growing up. And I'm fascinated by them. And I'm like, that's the story I want to tell because there's something a little bit more nuanced that was never portrayed in any film, in any media. And I'm going to stand on this one. This is the story that if I get one shot to make a movie, this is the one I'll be happy with. My name is Evan Jackson Leong, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Evan Jackson-Leong, the writer and director of Snakehead, a modern crime thriller that's actually in theaters and on demand on October 29th. Snakehead tells the story of two women in Chinatown's world of human smuggling, starring Shuya Chang, Jade Wu, Yachin Dejumbae, and Sung Kang. It's a powerful film that cuts deeper than you might think, and you should actually stop what you're doing right now and go watch it. Evan's a sixth-generation Chinese-American director and documentary filmmaker, most known so far previously for his documentary, Lin Sanity, and a ton of other powerful projects, including directing a lot of documentaries, cinematography, film work in shorts, working with his mentor Justin Lin, and MTV, Nike, Toyota, Lancome, and even some of the Fast and Furious movies. And he's just an all-around great guy. But Sharon, I gotta ask, what did you think of Evan? And more importantly, what did you think of his film Snakehead? I thought Evan was fantastic, and I enjoyed his humble beginnings of filming wedding videos as part of his journey. (laughs) Everyone's got to start somewhere. (laughs) And there's also just something about like going to Chinese banquets, a lot of like Chinese weddings, just always like the film crew was a really big part of that experience. So I just imagined him doing a lot of that back in his college. Well, spoiler alert, there's actually a scene that takes place at a banquet. There is. He probably did that so well from all of his experience. (laughs) Snakehead was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. As somebody who grew up in Chinatown, watching the story unfold in literally my old hood was amazing. Wait, was growing up like that for you? (laughs) I hope not. I didn't, I wasn't part of an underground operation at all. No. You did not smuggle people into this country that you know. Of. No, no. But we talked to him a little bit about the dumpling scene. And I remember that really well. Like my grandfather owned a restaurant and he spent many evenings and mornings folding dumplings and wontons. And so just little things like that, that he had peppered through 
the film, I thought were just such nice ways to tell the story of a community that was and a community that still exists today. Yeah, and it, it's very layered because it scratches beneath the surface of the Chinatown that we know. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, it's a crime story. And yes. it's, it's not your father's crime story. Uh, it's your mean Asian auntie that you're afraid of's crime story. And it's really good. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Evan. Evan, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Evan, you are... Famous slash infamous for some of your work, but I guess the real question I want to know is, where are you from? Uh, famous and infamous. So yes, I'm <laughs> from San Francisco. So I am a sixth generation Chinese American, born and raised in, in San Francisco, California. And so, yeah, I had a very Asian American growing up experience. What does that mean? And, <laughs> yeah, and, and sixth generation is... A long That's like OG. Time. That's like, like your family's in the cast of Warrior, I think. <laughs> they exactly. Are. Exactly. They are. They are. They're from that era, from the railroad era. I've always wanted to, I love that era. Yeah, I mean, growing up in San Francisco, it's, it's a little bit of a bubble in terms of just diversity and ideas and culture, right? So growing up there, I, I didn't know I was a minority. I really didn't know I was a minority until I got to college because every mm-hmm. school I went to, every community I was in, Asian Americans were the dominant and the majority of everywhere I went. Where did you end up going to school? For college, I went to UC Riverside for two years, and then I transferred to UCLA, where I finished it out. Asian American Studies. Interesting. And so that was the first time that you felt like people around you just looked different. No, not necessarily different, but I just didn't, didn't realize that we were not the majority. Right. I knew what minorities were and I understood what that was, but I never really, I didn't really feel it. You knew you had heard about that concept, yeah, I just didn't right? didn't really feel it. Then you're like, oh, this is actually a pretty big thing, right? Because I grew up very, very different than any Asian American. I, I, the ones that I meet where you are very much uh, an outsider. You're the only Asian in your class. I'm not from an immigrant family, so it's a sixth generation. We were very, my grandmother speaks perfect English. Well, she did. She did. Yeah. So. That's wild to me because I'm, I guess I'm third generation, but my grandparents came over and they came over pretty early because they were really young when they came over in the early 1900s. And Evan's got you beat by like a century, dude. I know. Yeah, Evan, you're way before me. It's only like 40 years. (laughs) Generations got me pretty quickly, surprisingly. Right. Especially back then when people like had kids much earlier. Yeah, they had kids when they were in their 20s, easy, right? Right. But like to me, and and it's funny because growing up too, like I don't think anyone's grandparents that I knew spoke perfect English if they had come, if they were of Chinese descent. So that whole concept to me, I'm still on it, like sixth generation Chinese I mean, American. Thing, right? I really I feel like you're- with a whole bunch of kids that were just like that, right? And grew up in the Japanese yeah. community. So they're all, they're all Sansei fourth generation and, and all the mm-hmm. Chinese Americans in, from Chinatown, San Francisco, Chinatown, they've been there several generations. So the, the experience that so much of the academics deal with about immigration and first generation- I was always fascinated by it. I don't realize why I was fascinated at the time, but in, now I, re, I look back and I realize like, well, that's what my great-great-great-grandparents did, right, to get here. Mm-hmm. What did mom and dad do? So my father was uh, a doctor, and my mom was a, a homemaker. And what did young Evan want to be when he grew up? And more importantly, what did mom and dad want young Evan to be? 
Well, that's the thing, right? I didn't have the pressure of immigrant parents, right? And my parents, mm -hmm. they're probably like you guys are, like with your kids. Whatever your kid wants to be, you're going to let them be. You're going to support them. You're going to give them all the resources you can possibly do to uh, let them chase their dreams, whatever that dream may be, right? And that's why I always tell my immigrant friends and even my wife, and they this looks like your kids are going to be, you're going to, it's just it's the next generation. They're going to be end up like me, which is, I don't know, a good or bad thing, but that's that's what it was and I, growing up I always thought I wanted to be a doctor because my father was a doctor and it made sense yeah. we had a good life doctors know everything they're very smart and so any issues you have you just call a doctor and your dad's a doctor so you just take take care of but my dad when I, when I talk when we talk about it now he's like yeah you weren't gonna be a doctor <laughs> you said it all those years back <laughs> There was no way you were going to be it because he knew what it took to be a doctor. And he's like, you didn't, uh, you didn't have the drive to be a doctor. What was that moment for you when not necessarily maybe you knew medicine or the sciences weren't for you, but what was that moment where you start to feel the itch, the, the creative itch that you obviously have run down? Completely? Yeah, I knew specifically when it happened. When I was at UCLA, I took this documentary class. And I spent like three weeks finishing it for the final project. And I just had... The most enjoyable, ex, ex, you know, it was the hardest thing ever, but every day I just pushed myself to the limit every day to work on this edit for this documentary. What was the documentary about? It was on uh, Himark Lai, a Chinese-American historian. And mm. it was at UCLA under, you know, Bob Nakamura and the Ethno-Communications Program, which was like an amazing uh, program because it didn't really exist. This is the early 2000s, right? To have access to video equipment and film equipment, no, mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. just, un it was not possible. Right. Prior to now, everyone has iPhones and digital. It's easy. But back then, the only way you could make films is on film and that cutting tape. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That, so I made this thing. I, I screened it. It was an amazing feeling for the I just screened it for like our class. Right. There's like 15 people there and I was dead tired. Mm -hmm. And I knew at that moment I was like, this is what I wanted to do. And so I had to drove up to the Bay Area that night because school's over and I remember just like, I'm going to tell my parents what I want to do. And, and when I told them, they were just like, yeah, do it. I don't know. We have no idea what that industry is like, but if that's what you want to do, go for it. And so it was a great moment because at that moment too, I met Justin Lin and it just felt like this is the right path for me to go. Because a, a lot of the projects you work on, I mean, you've been like second unit, you, you've got a lot of reps doing the work. Can you talk about like that phase of your career? Because it's not just like, oh, I showed up one day and I made an amazing documentary called Linsanity and the brand deal just started coming in. Right? And I got to work on my passion project over many, many years. I, there, that, I, maybe that's the rosy version of the story, but I would imagine there's a lot of, you we know, wanna hear, yeah, sweat. we want to hear about the grind. We want to <laughs> yeah, hear about no, the grind. I count my blessings every day. The fact that I'm still in this game after 20 years, it's, it's the hugest success in my, in my eyes, right? Even succeeding into my 30s, still doing it, right? Mm -hmm. This is a struggle. Chasing, making movies and in this industry is not an easy thing, right? It's an industry of rejection, right? And so you're constantly looking for opportunities and places to learn and, and things to just further the craft. But for me, I, I took everything and anything, right? I took music videos. I took PA jobs. I did second unit this. I did transpo. I did all sorts of everything in the hopes that, you know, when I, I first met my mentor, Justin Lin, he was like, you need to learn everything on the set. So that will prepare you one day to be a director. 
And so I took that to heart and I basically took every single job I possibly could to learn every part of the set. And yet, technically, you can learn everything, but in the end of the day, storytelling is, is this other craft that you have to understand and learn. So for many years, it was just documentary and freelance work. Anyone and anything that would get me jobs, I would take them. What were some of the hardest jobs that you had to do? I don't know if they're necessarily, they're all hard, right? I think every single one is hard because you're doing for, with, with no budget, with under, and you're just trying to. I want, I want names, Evan. I want, I want to hear about the project, yeah. the hardest project. <laughs> I want to hear the, the thing that made you want to keep going or made you want to quit. Like I learned else. early on was that wedding videos were not for me. <laughs> oh, Wow, so you went down uh, that yeah, path. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta start out. That's the one thing that there's really no entry point except someone that you know is getting married, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you yeah. have a camera. Yeah. So. yeah. So so tell us more about that because what's interesting is you came are they, from... Wait, are they Asian weddings? Are they Indian weddings? Probably, are they right? Weddings? It's just Big in the community, one. right? So it's just people that... So it's all Asian weddings, right? It's all Asian weddings. All your friends' weddings. Whenever you were invited, you were like, hey, so you need a video? Yeah, yeah. We made awesome <laughs> wedding videos. This is 2000. They're like music. There's explosions. There's CGI. They were, they were epic. They were these epic, epic cinematic <laughs> things. And I think they're doing them now. They're pretty good these days. But back then, you couldn't do that with the gear we had. And Yeah. But what happened was that we, I, I hated it so much that I started to hate film making and i was like we, i gotta stop this because this is reasonable pay but i i don't want to lose my drive for this craft so what happened then after too many wedding videos i mean you know i'm in my 20s so i'm trying to make music videos right music videos is an easy entry point to uh, getting this acclaim right you're just looking for something that's going to pop that people you can use as a calling card to f find your way through the industry and that's all we're always trying to do. But even to this day, we're still, I mean, this is what Snakehead is, a calling card for me. Mm -hmm, so, I can mm -hmm. get, so I can get another job, right? And that's just the process. Well, back then, as you were looking, I think all of us in our careers, we always look five to 10 years down the line. And we're like, who's doing the job that I want? Who's working on the thing? Man, if I could do that. And I'm not saying we don't try to chart our own path, but we admire people who have made it a little bit further, who come where we've come from. And I know you've mentioned Justin, but as you were coming up as a filmmaker, who were who were the creators that you admired back then that you modeled not just your approach, but even like your your process and your ethic off of? I think one of my biggest heroes was Wong Kar Wai back then, right? Because he was just doing something so mm -hmm. he was and, and he was getting the acclaim for it. He made films that were just so beautiful and, and stories that just stayed with you, yet broke all the rules of traditional filmmaking. And I found that to be super exciting, right? Because I, I came from a, like a real interesting time in film where the transition to digital and the old school and the new school is coming in. There's a lot more opportunity. There's a lot more things. So I was stuck. I learned from the old school, but I was presented with all this new school opportunities and all this new technology. And so I had to really slow down you know, my process so that I could look back and see how to tell a story, right? And all that preparation, though, I think at the end of the day, I don't know, when you're actually directing your first feature film, like, everything goes out the window. It's yeah. just, <laughs> you're just trying to do, trying to make it through the day. Well, okay, so I've seen a, a lot of your work, and I think a, a compliment of great work is you make it look easy. And I know it's not. Like, I've read that you've been working on this film, Snakehead, for nearly 14 years. In fact, I think you said when you undertook this film, you knew this movie could be your last. 
why would you say that? Is this like the ultimate? There's nothing after that? Because I know it's not. I've seen the film. It's amazing. So like, why were you saying it could have been your last? When I look at the craft of, of directing a feature film, you know, the first film, well, it means so much. And mm-hmm. it's hard mm-hmm. to walk away from that. And I've seen so many directors make a first feature and it changed their lives. And then I've seen so many that just could not get away from that first feature. Right. Mm. And so Hmm. I don't know if it's like that now, but I know back then and I know in general, right, the amount of resources, the amount of time, the amount of effort and passion to make a film like it better be everything that you hope for and you do because you might not get another chance if it's bad. Right. And I looked at that even just the idea of like, look, this is I think you need to have that passion for the work and and the story and the content because you care that much about then it's going to be good but if you walk your way through it we've seen that we've seen what happens when a director just walks through Mm -hmm. a film right it just doesn't it doesn't have that soul i mean i don't know if it's easy to measure what that is but i do know like you can tell when there's passion and there's soul in the film right even if it's not perfect you can feel that presence and i think that's what you can feel in snakehead right i think that yeah yeah it's not it exudes it man thank you man thank you thank you Can you tell us how this all started? Like, what inspired your work 14 years ago? Well, I wanted to impress this girl. Nice. (laughs) And and so I was like, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a director. And I wrote, and and then I heard this story, right? And I was like, this is the movie I want to make. I pitched it. Wait, wait, wait. How did you learn about the story? And then what was it about the story? So. Ernesto Ferranda, one of Justin's writers, one of his best friends, he told me about this story of this woman in New York that was smuggling people. And I was like, that mm-hmm. sounds cool. And he was like, yes, it's a cool story. And this is Sister Ping? <laughs> this is Sister Ping. Okay. And at the time, I was like, I, I want a feature film. And I wrote a couple projects before that just didn't really go anywhere. And mm-hmm. when I heard about her and in New York, I was like, that's the story. If I get one shot to make a movie, that's the story I want to make, right? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I wrote the script. It probably wasn't that good, but I shared it with a girl, and uh, now she's my wife. <laughs> Something it works. So that worked. <laughs> and she's still around after 14 years of you working on this. Yeah, yeah, right. At the time, the story, it resonated me so much because I wanted to make an underworld-themed film, right? I grew up on mm-hmm. Scarface, Goodfellas, and Godfather, and so... Yeah. I was like, what's the Chinese version of that, right? And the iteration for me was like, oh, let's, let's make it a woman. This is 2008, so we don't, in the last 10 years, 14 years, there's been a lot more women underworld stories. But 2008, mm-hmm. there weren't that many, right? And so it was, maybe Kill Bill was like, it blew people away that you could make women be in mm-hmm. that space. And uh, But for me, having the strong Asian matriarchs was super important to me because that's all I had in my life growing up, right? Mm -hmm. Strong Asian women. And I'm fascinated by them. And I'm like, that's the story I want to tell because Asian men have this other idea of what masculinity is, right? And there's a lot of insecurity Mm -hmm. braced that. But women, there's something a little bit more nuanced that was never portrayed in any film, in any media. And I don't even know if I did it correctly. But at the time, that, that I've never seen that before. And I'm like, this, I'm going to stand on this one. And this is the story that if I get one shot to make a movie, this is the one I'll be, I'll be happy with. Well, so the two lead characters, and I want to talk about them in a bit. But yes, strong, like just electric, both of the performances, but the character arcs. But 
it's born out of another piece of history. So this isn't just a movie on Sister Ping's life. It's an adaptation, almost an homage. But Kenman Island, like I didn't know about Kenman Island. There's some allusions to it in some of the shots. And as I was reading about the film afterwards, like, how did that play into it? Like, how did you just can you tell us about Kenman Island and what it is? Because that's a piece of history I don't think people know about. Yeah, yeah. Kenman Island became a little, which I, in hindsight, I probably should have did a little more justice to telling the stories of that. And I just we brushed over the origin story of her. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, when we look at what, what was happening, Kinmen Island is basically an island between China and Taiwan. And it's Taiwan, when they went to war, then Taiwan claimed that island. But it's only like a mile away from China. So it was heavy, heavily militarized by the Taiwanese army. And what's interesting is that before the war and before Taiwan and China separated, all that area, Taiwan and China, Fujian, they all were just, they all lived together. It's all the same culture, right? It's just a bunch of ocean people. And the thing was when Taiwan took it over, it's like, okay, these people are stuck in the middle, but the army was stationed there. And if you actually go into history, this is not a great thing, but they, they used the island, the, the military was there, and then the... The Taiwanese government was like, we have all these men here. <laughs> we have to actually, we were going to send prostitutes that live there mm -hmm. on the island, mm -hmm. right? And this was sanctioned by the government, right? These almost, yeah. but these were women that were already prostitutes in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, hey, we'll pay you to legally do this on Kimmen Island. Wow. And they went there and Sister C is a baby born from that, right? Wow. And right. uh, that's all she's known. Yeah, that's all she's known. There's that line. She says something like, I was sold when I was four or something like that. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And for me, that the idea of that Warner story, and it's really interesting because there's a museum on Kimmen Island. It's a really interesting place, that the island, and it has its presence. And I'm glad we were able to do that. And at the same time, like it's, it goes against the traditional idea of what a story we just picked the major cities most of the time for movies mm -hmm. and and having something like this in Kimmen Island made it a little bit more special what took all that time <laughs> like why 14 years what happened well, over yeah, the last I can, decade I can break and down a half the years for you that one's really easy right <laughs> I heard you moved to New York and then you encountered someone else yeah there was some other yeah, film yeah, maybe yeah, that yeah, happened yeah, in between yeah, yeah. 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 I mean 2008 started writing it 2009 moved to New York and at the time again like as a filmmaker, as an indie guy, right out and a freelance, you just pick up every single project you possibly can. And they're like all these seeds that maybe one of them will grow. And one of these was yeah. this documentary on this Asian American basketball player from the Bay Area that went to Harvard, right? And, <laughs> and no one could believe that existed. Yeah. And the, and the reality was really, I just thought, I was like, oh, this is great. He plays D1 basketball. That's never happened before. <laughs> right? Right. I own a camera. Yeah. Never had an Asian American guy on a D1 basketball, right? That in itself was right. an inspiration to me. The NBA, yeah. what he did in New York, I did not. We just thought maybe he could make the NBA. That's a great ending to this documentary. If anything, maybe an eight-year-old kid that sees this and has the potential could make it to D1 and make it take it further than him. Yeah. So yeah, anyways, I moved to New York and we're still shooting this little doc on the side. And then all of a sudden this blew up, right? I mean, the sanity landed. <laughs> And the right. world stopped. And as I should, I stopped all my other projects and just focused on that for a couple of years. And Lizanne pushed us, you know, elevated my career definitely to another place where all of a sudden now I have managers. I have 
what's your next project? What are you going to do after Sundance? It definitely gave me the bump that I needed to try to go after Snakehead on a bigger level. Because prior to that, I'm like, oh, we're just going to go run around and shoot this like an indie movie. Did something change for you creatively? You took your foot off the gas pedal on this passion project and you made this other passion project to be clear, but genre-wise, style-wise, very, very different. Once the, the tide started to recede from Linsanity and you started to re-enter Snakehead, the mental space for it, was there anything different about the way you looked at Snakehead after that? I definitely felt more confident, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I didn't know what I was doing. I've been making documentaries <laughs> for 13 years, so getting into a narrative thing was like, you're trying to be that character in that role of, of director. At the time, I was like, my manager was like, who do you want Who do you want to star? And I'm like, I want Lucy Liu. And they're like, all right, let's go send it to her. I can call and her. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's so she awesome. She read the script and she's like, I want to be in it. I want to be a part of this. And I was like, what? And so all of a sudden, you, you <laughs> like, it felt like this entourage moment, right? Where you're just like, I'm in the game, right? And so... But I was not at all prepared for that at all at the time. It, it, Hollywood and raising money, it's a different part of the process that you don't really get to play until you pass a certain level. And then when you're there, it's just a whole other game that you got to play. It has nothing to do with the creative process, right? Yeah. Do, do you find that part a little easier now? More and more folks, big studios, probably venture funds wanting to hear Asian stories. Is that a little bit easier today than it was even 10 years ago? I don't think there's been a better time for us. Yeah. It's, it's the, the most meetings I've ever had that are looking for Asian projects, right? That being said, I don't know if we're the flavor of the year, if this is a trending moment or if yeah. this will continue, yeah. right? Because I don't have, for really honest, I just don't have any expectations, right? It's the people in power are still the same people in power that were five years ago, yeah. right? And yeah. I like the fact that they are trying, but at the end of the day, this comes down to money, right? And the way this industry runs, if, if Snake It makes millions of dollars, then yeah then there'll be more right but sure yeah well and then the only thing you can control is make the best damn product yeah yeah exactly exactly and at the same time yeah things have changed look the things that we're having now i mean we have we have an asian american superhero that's crazy that's crazy to me right and you have characters that people know that they're making their own thing but at the same time like what's next right we had this nice little windfall right here and you have you guys like justin chan they're just making blue body there they're continuing on his path, right? And then when I, I tried to, when I look at Justin's career, I'm really like, oh, that's Justin Chan's career. It's like, he just makes his own fate, right? He just creates mm -hmm. that. And I think that's what I continue to have to do unless you get opportunity, right? But I'm not going to wait around for the opportunity because, yeah, you just don't know if it's going to happen. Well, so once you actually get into production, and film productions take the few months, I heard that <laughs> this took a little bit longer. It was a little scattered over time. Yeah. How did that change how you had to tell the story to like keep coming back to it over and over again? Yeah, yeah. The script is huge. There's the set pieces almost every five pages, right? And so we almost executed almost we executed all of it, which is unbelievable, right? There's scenes where you need hundreds of extras, and you're like, we got them, right, for free. Mm. And you need, you need big locations. You need boats. You need action stunts. And you don't really do that on an indie film, but we did it and we executed. When we were shooting, we were just we had to find free locations, we had to find free places, we had to manage people's schedules to match because we're not paying anybody. And so mm -hmm. that slowed down production. It definitely we had this nice little bulk of shooting, 
in the middle of January and February when it was the coldest it possibly could be. But then we have a boat scene, then we have an LA scene. So these things couldn't really take place within production. So I was like, let's, because we're pushing everybody so hard, let's take our little bit of breaks and let me figure mm -hmm. it out. Take a little step back and come back into it. That being said, we shot over 45 days, I think. And that was just unbelievable <laughs> that we were able to do that. And part of that is the fact that I knew how to do every single thing on set. So I know how to cut the corners that we can cut, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing you've said is that Snakehead was made for and by New York City's Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel it. Like, I, I I was transported. It felt almost like Chinatown was its own character. It's like the fifth character in this movie. And I guess I'm going to ask Sharon a question. I don't know. Like, I'm a guy who's been to Chinatown with my wife's family. And I, I spent yeah. enough time there. I didn't grow up there. Was that your Chinatown, Sharon? Or did you discover the yeah. CD underbelly that you didn't know? Yeah. No, Evan, you portrayed that so well. Like I grew up in Chinatown. And so Bayard Street with all the mahjong parlors, the fish store and the arowana, like all of it. And you captured it in a way where it was really authentic. Like, like this sounds gross, but like I could smell it <laughs> <That's so awesome. laughs> through the screen, like the garbage bags sitting outside the restaurant, right? The chef lighting a cigarette outside that door. Like just the, just everything, the, the way that things were lit, the, the streets themselves, like East Broadway is a real thing. The scenes with the, the lion dances and stuff, just everything about it. It was, it was really spot And it wasn't, it wasn't sanitized. It, it was, I had like a very visceral reaction to it. I was uncomfortable watching like not the movie itself, not even the character drama, but it felt like something just around the corner. What's happening after I go home and I right. after I leave right. Chinatown? It was very like, it's like that behind the scenes stuff, right? It's like, it's almost like when you go behind the curtain mm. after a play yeah. and like there's like glitter on the floor and no one's actually mopped up the, all of the mess yet. It, it, and I think that that added to how real it felt because it was even... Even certain scenes where Sister C was talking to Daima and there's just all like clutter mm -hmm. everywhere. Just like whenever, like whenever I go into my, like my grandma used to live in a walk up, it was always, they just collect stuff over time because they've been in these spaces for so long. And when you're an immigrant, it's, it's not easy to throw things away. And it's just like you, you captured all of that on film. It was really cool kind of amazing thing no I, I'm, I'm glad you feel like that especially someone that grew up there Sharon that's the that's the best compliment I can get for this film because I think that's important it was one thing you do as a filmmaker right in your first film you lean into your strengths right my strengths have always been styles and visuals and I wanted to really paint New York Chinatown in this beautiful dark underworld sort of light right and yet staying true and being authentic but the thing is, right, and you know, credit to my, my cinematographer, Ray, we had these long discussions about, like, how do we want to portray Chinatown? And there was, like, these three layers, three worlds that we wanted to explore, right? There was the, the first world that, you know, you walk down Bayer Street and it's a tourist and you mm. see the outside, yeah. right? And then there's the second layer is where the cooks are, the chefs are, the massage parlors, the, the aquariums, are, the stuff you're going inside, you're getting a little bit further, right? And then the third layer was mm -hmm. the underworld, right, that nobody really gets to see. And that was a very important thing for us because in using, I guess, as a documentary filmmaker, I always known that the, the real world is always going to be better than what we can create, especially when we have no money. So using 
and building relationships in Chinatown for years. I spent mm. 2010 to 2015 with- like, who's this Pak shooting in our backyard, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Right. I spent five years just taking people to dim sum and lunch and asking <laughs> them, I'm, I'm doing this thing, I got no money, can you please let me shoot there for a day? And I think that shows, right? And I couldn't have yeah. done, like, you can't get to those places unless the owner is your friend. Even the owner, if you pay the owner, they right. might not let you shoot in the places we shot. Yeah, like Jing Fong was like, not just a restaurant in that movie. I felt like it was a character. I was like, oh yeah, I had dim sum there like a million times or I've been to like a million wedding banquets in that right, spot. Right, yeah. And everything from like the crystal chandelier, like I've been there. Like it's so crazy how you did that. It was very, and you know very what's cool. what's wild is that it's almost like a, a time capsule right now, right? Because yeah, yeah. It doesn't, Jing Fong doesn't mm-hmm. exist. A lot of these places don't exist. Mm-hmm. Chinatown doesn't really look like that anymore with all the, all the, the hanging ornaments and the lighting yeah. and the, and yeah. the painted yeah. streets, which is fine. All that chain is fine and everything, but it just doesn't look, it looks a little bit like a Disneyland now. I know. Mm-hmm. I think there's literally a Popeye's yeah. in there now. Like whatever that entrance was, Ramen, there's Don't a Popeye's, knock Popeye's in Popeye's, Come on. No, but <laughs> no I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> well, I, I want to bring it to food a little. There, there was a moment, Evan, and it's when Sister Say is working in the restaurant with her BFF, Zareeb, and the Chinese woman cannot fold a dumpling. And I, I felt that because my wife gets on to my daughter and my like lack of dumpling folding <laughs> abilities. But it, it's like these yeah. little moments of of humanity. It's not just the humanity, but the realism. And the movie's like peppered with all of those. And were these things that just showed up in iterations of writing and writing and writing over 14 years? Or were some of it just like figuring it out on the set? Like there were just so many things that I just caught moments that made me pause i'll I'll give Um, you there's like 10 other moments in every scene that i gotta trim down right i think mm -hmm. what the problem was you know a lot of time was like i had such big ideas for this i'm not trying to make Mm -hmm. godfather i was trying to make goodfellas right and one of the best things in goodfellas is him cooking right this Mm time scenes of him cutting the garlic and i knew that food is an element that's easy for people to connect to and, and and relate to and everyone loved dumplings and nobody likes making them No, no, they don't. They don't. And for me, it was like going around when I lived in New York in, in Chinatown. It, you're always walking by these underground places there. You just see an army of people folding dumplings, right? And I remember yeah. even restaurants. End of the night, it's like we're going to fold dumplings because for tomorrow. Yeah. And that's just what we do. And I've always known that that's a huge part of the restaurant culture that I, I wanted to. What if she can't fold dumplings? That's, that would be amazing, right? Because. Yeah. Because yeah. not all Chinese people can fold dumplings. Yeah, that's a stereotype. No, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. How did you come up with There's some really unique shots. I felt like some of them were homages. And again, this one, it's the easiest one to hang my hat on. But it's like the dim sum Lazy Susan rotation shot with like Daima and all of her sons and sister say. Where did you come up with that? Had that been done before? Is that like an homage to something or is that an original, man? I've never seen that. But then someone told me, it's like, oh, it's just like that 70s show when they get stoned. (laughs) 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 No, you know, for me, the Lazy Susan was a huge part of my upbringing. I've had Lazy Susan in my house since I was a child, right? And so, and that's the way you eat dinner, right? And It's literally when we call my parents on FaceTime after dinner, like the phone is on a glass and it's literally turning from person to person. Yeah. So that's yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our culture. And I'm like, oh, it's a great visual way to tell this story, right? I think if I was a better storyteller at the time, I could really hit home with that. And we did. I've seen this cut down 
almost like 60%, right? Because yeah. the writing is not strong enough. But there's these great zooms that go in around. And at the time we had the actors, like they act. And then when you're off screen, you have to do the Lazy Susan because it was too hard yeah. for any of us to jump in there because it's a 360 camera angle. So everyone has to hide. <laughs> the whole crew has to hide. You're ruining the magic. Be quiet. That's funny. So we have a mutual friend, Brian, and he told me to ask you about the porta potty. The porta potty. The porta potty story. This is this classic, classic indie film anything, right? So we, we get this abandoned house in Brooklyn for free. So I go, we got to shoot here. But this house is freezing. It's 40 degrees outside, but it's like 30 degrees in the house for some reason. And it's the scene where we have the. You know, when Sister C beats uh, Sin in the safe house. Yeah, it was the money laundering in the safe house. It was house. so yeah. hard to do, right? That thing was so hard to do. So we, we have two days to shoot there. We get in the first day. And we're like, well, there's no working bathroom. So we got to get a, a porta potty. Porta potty gets delivered. And in Brooklyn, on the brownstones, they have that little area with the fence, mm-hmm. right? Next to yep. the, the stairs go yep. up. And mm-hmm. then you have that little area that's not part of the street, but it's part of your property. Yeah. So we're like, oh, let's put it over yep. that thing, right? And yeah, you can do that for three guys. It's only maybe a hundred pounds and it has all this stuff in it, right? Oh God. So then two oh days later we shoot and there's a lot of extras in that scene. So there's two days later, <laughs> you have like 50 people using that bathroom for two days straight. And I feed my crew well. That's the one thing we made sure we yeah. do. We don't have money, we can't pay people, but you're going to eat. You're going to have plenty of crafties. You're never going to be thirsty. You're going to be okay. So people were always fed well and drank well. That being said, that porta potty was probably three times the weight it was the first day. And so there was option. It was at the end of the night. It's three in the morning. We wrapped. And they already had this conversation with me about like, we can't go this long. This is too much for the crew. We can't do it like this. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Let's figure it out. But we got to move this porta potty before we wrap, before we leave, right? So it's just me, the producer, Brian, another producer, uh, Dan Mark, Anson Ho, and the cinematographer. Probably this is the most important people to make the movie go. <laughs> right, well, we can come back here in three hours and guys can help move this over right now. We got four or five guys right now to carry it over this no. little fence, oh, right? My and we're like, oh, it's fine. It's, again, it's like 30 degrees outside, three in the morning. And no, it will be fine. So we don't really think too much about it. We just want to get it done. So we don't really plan. And so each one gets a corner, right? And you just hear the slush, slush inside, right? <laughs> and we lift it, right? And there's two guys on one side and then the fence is on the other. So the other guy says one guy on the other side. And yep. uh, it starts to tilt a little bit, right? One side's a little too strong and you got liquid in it. So all of a sudden that liquid rushes to the right side. So it gets way heavier. On the one person side. Oh, Lord. And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> and <then laughs> we flip the porta potty so it doesn't fall on anybody. And it just, blam, on the ground. And uh, one of the producers, Dan Mark, is like, ah. Oh. We're like, you okay? You okay, man? And he got a little cut on his finger, and he was okay. But <laughs> at the time, right, you got to remember that when we lifted it up, right, this is just sloshing around like a cup. Imagine a cup of water, and if you kind of like tilt it around, mm-hmm. that's oh, what no. was happening inside yep. of it. And that was like day five. So we're like, okay, this is, <laughs> we're in for it now. You can only go uphill from there. Basically. <laughs> I don't even know how to shift gears out of that story. But... 
I mean, you talked a little bit about the reasoning of the character of Daima, the not just a strong Asian woman, but like, man, the auntie you don't want to cross. Like, and I think Shuya Chang like is electric and l- lights up every scene she's in. And it's again dark and disturbing way. But Jade Wu, I again visceral reaction. Like I scary, like pure scariness out of her eyes. Just, that yes. is a hard woman. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Not the actress. Yeah. That yeah. that's amazing acting. But I guess um <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to ask here. Just like how do you direct someone to like give that out? <laughs> I mean, Jade, Jade's beast, she's an amazing actress, right? And, you know, it, it's all of them, right? I had Sung, I had Suyu. I had unlimited great, great performances from for, for actors that were so much more experienced than I was, right? And so they gave me, and they lifted me up where things I didn't know, right? And Jade especially, right? I mean, we talked a lot about Daima and what she represented, right? And when we talked about... The way the world was, you know? Yeah. Well, we always talked about the idea of a, a woman boss versus a male boss, right? Men... Mm. In movies, they always lose because of their pride, because of their greediness. It's ultimately because they're just men, right? Yet at the same time, when we talk about women that run big operations, that run the underworld, like they're smart and their businesses continue to grow because they're not driven by the same things that men are driven by. They're driven by building and building community and, and, and also presence. And I think that's what we really were trying to figure out with Daima was like, okay, she's her motivations. Yeah, money's there. But that's what they do. But it's really about building, right? That's the difference in my mind of what that character should, should play as a woman versus a man. And yeah, and Jade just killed it. Just absolutely crushed it. Every time she's on screen, we're like, wow, that is just great. And at the same time, I'm like, Wong Kar Wai trying to be Wong Kar Wai. I'm just like, just go have fun. Do what you want to do. Let me just see what Mm. you can try. Yeah, it was, I don't want to spoil the film, but I'll just say the story of the relationships there was so interesting. Like even just the way that they, like just expressions of like just glances with the eyes, both uh, Daima and Sister C, the way that they communicate without communicating, I thought was so powerful how that story was being told and how their relationship evolved throughout the film. Really yeah, I mean, there's one line. I think Daima said it to Sister C on like one of the bus rides, and it hit me a little too hard, man. So I'm a little angry at you for how hard this line hit me the other night, Evan. And Daima says, "You see your faults in your children, and you just wish you had done better." Hmm. And like that's like yeah. such a layered, cutting statement, and. I stayed up reflecting on that as a parent. Oh, no. <laughs> I may or may not have been drinking while watching the movie, but it took me to a really thoughtful place. And But it, it just, it tells a lot of stories because Daima's, there is a mother-daughter relationship, but she has her favorite in Rambo and in, in Sung's character. And I, I don't know, man. It's really interesting. I also feel like how Asian men, right? They're, they're treated like princes in every Asian culture, right? No matter mm-hmm. how good or bad right. they are, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. always treated that way, right? And so she's torn between totally. the old school and the new school, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, I hope that changes as time goes on. But a lot of times the Asian man is, especially in those traditional immigrant families, is like they're, no matter how ridiculous and stupid he is, he's still going to be the face of his family. For society, right? right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think for me, a lot of times exploring this and thinking about this, I'm not a woman, but I'm just like, wow, there's all these ridiculous things that 
men just get and it's just part of our being right when we don't realize right we don't realize how unfair it is to be that yeah yeah and i think that's what punctuated it more it was like it made me as i was watching the film it made me wonder so many times like what did daima go through like what did it take for her to be in that position you know the decisions that she's had to make the who, who like who knows like i still feel like there's like a whole story there's like a whole thing of her own history and and what brought her to to do what she was yeah, doing there's so much it's there's really so much there's so it's so rich right immigrant yeah. stories are just yeah. incredible just the normal immigrant story it's like wow how did you get here yeah. right yeah the sacrifices so you said you started this 14 years ago to impress a girl yeah <laughs> he dedicated the movie to her what you you and you dedicated the movie to her what is what does your wife think about all of this now that it's out and it's real so when we talk about like how hard this film was, just go nine months ago, my film, I mean, my narrative film career is over. Like I don't have any prospects. There's no opportunities. This film just sitting around and in their circles, people know like, oh, you've been, it must be bad because it's taking you this long to finish it. And it was rough. We'd have these focus group screenings. We'd have these things where we were just getting, I was just getting destroyed. Like people were just like, this is a terrible movie. This is people, you guys should just move on. You should just stick to documentaries. You should just, and, and my wife, she was there right there with me. She felt and experienced all of that as well, right? And it's hard as right. an artist to put yourself out there and, and make some work and use every single favor and resource that you have to do something and it fail, right? I, I mean, from 2017, 617 to I guess even last year, I was failing with this movie, right? We didn't have, we got turned down by multiple festivals, turned down by multiple, just even our peers that we would think mm-hmm. would be supportive or not supportive. And that's sad, right? That was really sad. But at the same time, like, she and I both were like, this is a good movie. Maybe these people ain't going to yeah. see it right now. Maybe they will at some point, but it's a good movie. And so in the end, I, I'm lucky. I'm like, okay, whatever happens, I'm okay because I have her and I have this, and um, and I did what we wanted to do, and and we got these other factors at play. I have no control. I have no control what Hollywood wants to do, how how it wants to be received by other people. But now I'm on a podcast with you guys, and that's truly, truly incredible <laughs> to me because the movie has not any different than it was a year ago, but. <laughs> Everything has changed, both in timing, but also getting this certain validation from Hollywood. Now it's like all of a yeah. sudden we're that. And that's something I, I found to be a little sad with our communities that we were very hypercritical of our own. But when it's validated by the rest of America or mainstream, that then okay. we accept it. Then we jump on it. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I get it. Um but because we move and we act like mainstream America, right? We don't really have our own market as Asian Americans. But we hope that in the community that you grew up in and the one that if I didn't have the, the Asian American community as a young filmmaker, I don't know if I would have been able to keep going, right? Because you just have this tiny little network that can get you a little bit of work. And then you get these little film festivals that give you opportunity to really grow as artists. Then when you, get, you finally make it, then they're like, ah, it's not too good. <laughs> that's right. That hurts. That hurts. Well, first, F those guys, Evan, because it's a damn good film. I actually, it's so good. Upon watching it, like I texted our mutual friend 
And I was like, that's not a movie. That's a film. And like, like a capital F film. And I think it's, it's a really shitty analogy other people will call me out for. But like in, in Hollywood, there's it's a lot of spectacle. There's a lot of movies and there's not a lot of authenticity and saturation, right? Like, I think we're oversaturated. And the, the analogy that'll get me in trouble is Bollywood. Like, I grew up having to watch Indian movies where it's it's spectacle times 10. Like, Hollywood's got nothing on the spectacle. Yes, money and robots and stuff, sure. But we got dancing in Bollywood. But it turned me <laughs> off of the genre for so long until I started seeing actual films coming out of the subcontinent, out of South Asia, right? Like films like Manto and other things. And I feel like that's what your film is doing. It's like, this is not Crazy Rich Asians. This is an authentic, it's a historical fiction. It's rooted in things that are happening in the world. There's a commentary, there's a point of view, there's an authenticity, there's moments. And it's worth it. And I, I think maybe people are just so saturated and we need to see something that's a little more real or something that has a point of view. And that's what I really, more than anything, appreciate about this. And, and with characters that I love and with performances and amazing cinematography. So like, it's, yeah, man, I was just, I didn't know what to expect. And I liked that. I didn't. And then I liked that I walked away, just moved, not in a good way sometimes, but it, it really yeah. it challenged the way I thought. So thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. That's, that's really amazing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I'm soaking every single word of that up because <laughs> like, not that many people have seen this film and for many years. Not yet. Not yet. It was just negative. Not so. Yeah. But they're about to. They're about to. I think at the end, it's like, for me, like, I I like this movie. I've been watching this film so many times, right? I've done this so many times. And even, like, in the final sound mix, I'm, like, watching that movie. And I'm, like, damn, it's inspiring because I've never seen anything like this before, right? And that's exciting to me when when people are trying to do something different, right? And and I think that's where you, you take chances. And if you take the chances and you win, it's an amazing moment. Yeah. If you were to go back, way back in San Francisco, what advice would you give to your younger self? Huh. That's funny you asked me that. Because my wife has a blog about that, and I never even questioned really myself about it. <laughs> I would tell myself, embrace the failure. Because that's what basically what I learned to do, right? I've really learned to embrace the failure. And that took me a little while to figure out. But when I embrace the failure, life is great. Because you almost expect the failure because you're going to get so much more growth from that than a win, right? Yeah. And wins are great, but you only grow when you fail. Yeah. And in your case, too, it's such a testament to having patience in that way. 14 years for this feature film. Who knew that it would take the amount of time it has? And here it is. And Remin and I have watched it, and, we, and we've really enjoyed it. So... I think it's. Yeah, I, can't, I cannot wait to like talk to my friends about this movie. Like, I need them to see this yeah. yesterday. Yeah, it's really, it's just really great storytelling. And with that, Evan, so we've covered a whole lot, and I think it's time now for speed round. Are you ready for okay. speed round? Wrong answer. No one's ever ready for speed round. Why do they think they're ready? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no one's ever ready. Well, I'm not I, ready for any. I'm not the quickest guy in general, so I just, just kidding. <laughs> failure is my failure is what I do. So. Yes, slow round. What's one thing about you that no one expects? I'm in the ice bath every day for about 10 minutes. Wow. 10 minutes? Whoa, that's intense. 
Do you like go buy bags of ice or do you just like have an ice maker that you're just filling it up all day? <laughs> How does that work logistically? Oh, I got I got these crazy surfer neighbors and, and they're all about Wim Hof and the ice bath. And now I'm a fanatic with it. And yeah. what is a book or movie that you'd recommend that has characters that you relate to? I mean, one book that I, I've been trying to promote the most is Minor Feelings by Kathy mm. Park. And oh, that yeah. Mo- that book is just it blows my mind how she's able to verbalize everything that we've we experienced here in this country, right? On a way like, oh, that's that's it. That is the voice that I want to hear from our community. Yeah, we've heard a lot of great things about that book. Yeah, you guys check it out. You haven't read it. It's so good. What is your favorite mom dish? Oh, man. My mom makes some good banana bread. Really good nice. banana bread. Yum. What's your least favorite food? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of all of the dried squid and the stinky squid, the dried seafood. All right. Yeah. That's fair. I think that's a legit yeah. answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty American <laughs> in that sense when it comes to that stuff. That's some sixth generation. Maybe if you were fifth generation, you'd be yeah. okay with it. But you'd, you'd have to have some dried squid. <laughs> <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Uh, Wong Kar Wai. Mm. What would you ask him? I ask him how. What? what? I'd ask him. I'd ask him about the process, right? The stories of almost wandering. The way he made films and the stories I hear about the way he made films, he just explored and he wandered, right? And and yet I want to know there how much intention there was with that, because to do that now. To, to be able to just be like she for a week and be like, not, we don't know where we're going is incredible to me that, that you could do that. <laughs> I, I got to ask a follow-up because I am not familiar with this film creator. So if I were to only get one film to, to watch to introduce myself to his work. Chunking Express. Right. No, actually, no. I'll go for In the Mood for Love and then go to Chunking Express. Okay. In the Mood <laughs> for Love because it's at, at young, Tony Leung, and it's, it's just incredible. Awesome. I will have to check those out. So, Evan, what does being a modern minority mean to you? For me, a modern minority, in the position that I am as a storyteller that reaches many people, I feel like there is a certain level of responsibility to share, to tell our stories in an authentic way. Yet, also, in, in from my perspective, I'm a very unique individual with my background, and yet I can see both sides of America, the majority and the minority, right? And I'm able to swim in both very easily. Yet, I do know that I am something different, right? Asian Americans, we're not white, we're not Asian, right? I'm going to China, I'm not that. And any white person in America ain't going to look at me like I eat what I eat with mm-hmm. them. And <laughs> so, it, we're, we're like, it's a minority of a minority of a minority. And we have an opportunity, a privileged opportunity to tell our stories. And, and that's what I feel like is the next 20, 30 years for me and making sure that I, I get that done. Well, I hope so. Cause I want to see more of this man. And I hope the next one doesn't take 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't make us wait. My 14 wife years. Says, no, that's not going to be allowed to happen. Again. <laughs> <laughs> just, just go get one of those Marvel movies and you'll be set. You know, <laughs> that would be nice. Put it out there. Yeah. Put it out there. <laughs> Well, Evan, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been so enjoyable getting to know you and so enjoyable watching Snakehead. 
And we really appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Yeah, and thanks for doing the work that you do, man. I, I cannot wait for the next one. Appreciate you guys. And I appreciate that you guys are doing this, right? This is special. This is special giving people an opportunity to talk and share when we don't always get this chance to you know, express our feelings. So thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. A woman born in the South in the 40s did not have a lot of ways to express themselves, especially not creatively. And so for a woman like that to have a child with a Turkish Muslim immigrant, where I was still always the brown sheep, she achieved what seemed impossible her whole life. And that's why, even though I'm standing next to John Lewis, I said, Mama, we made it because we did. There's not a lot of moments in your life where all the wrongs and all the pain seem worth it. But if you stand up on a stage with John Lewis telling you you're his son and that your mother helped you change the world gives you a little bit of hope for what you can do with a life well spent. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.